How you doing? Good. Doing okay. Good. It's good to see y'all. I uh, uh, I wanted to let y'all know that I have uh, I just returned from Austin and I'm very sleepy, but I'm I'm turning it on for you right now. I'm turning oh, it on. Dear. You're and welcome. Thus, I am turned on. So oh. you turning on turns me on. I'm only turned on because you're not wearing pants and showing. That's true. I'm not on. wearing pants. I don't wear pants when I podcast anymore. Um, that's the new rule. Hey, y'all, we have some really incredible listeners of this podcast. Travis, you're one of them. You've 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 interacted a lot with us, which we love, and we have a bunch of people who who reach out, and we we got a question mm-hmm. uh, from one of our listeners, and I wanted to throw it out there. Are y'all down for it? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. What is it? Okay, so this is from Austin Almond, who I believe we may have read a message from before on the podcast. Um, and then I actually have another message from him that we'll read uh, on the the Wiz Live episode because it kind of relates to that. All right. no. But um, so he's been very engaged, which I love. But oh my God, Scott, that was sexy. Okay. Um, no, it was really hot. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is what Austin said. Okay, so I'm nervous. I just sent my friend a draft of the farce I'm entering in a local theater competition. If I win, it will be the October show in the 2024 season, which is my birth month, so it must be fate. And then he sent the synopsis, which is is very interesting, but I'm not going to read it on the podcast because then people will still steal it. Yeah, yeah, um, also, there's an urn, uh, which is a puppet played like uh, Audrey II style uh, actor. Uh, yeah, so very oh. exciting. Um, but he said, you know, send me some gold vibes. But also, here's a question: How do y'all deal with feedback in your own creative process? Do you deal with it in an ideal way, or do you have trouble with it? So, Austin, first of all, thank you so much for the question and for and we're yeah. sending you all the yeah. golden vibes. Yeah, sending yeah. those vibes, bro. Yeah, man. All the gold vibes. But I wanna I wanna ask you all this. Like, and let's start with Travis, uh, who we'll introduce in a second, but you might have mes- met him on our last episode. Travis, how do you deal with feedback? I know you write a lot and you produce your works get produced a lot. So I know you get feedback when you're workshopping and stuff. How do you deal with this for the most part? Uh, well, usually when I get feedback, I just know that's how they get you. And um, <laughs> who's they? They, the man. man. The they, man. The man. Yeah, you're uh, right. I got no, you. I got I, you. Uh, I, I've just like, I've learned to like create my own filter really. And either it makes sense. And if it's good feedback, like I'll figure out how to incorporate it if it goes towards my overall vision and if it's crap feedback i know how to put on a thank you and then just completely ignore it honestly absolutely um, and that's all that's honestly all you can really do uh just know what you want is the most important way of dealing with feedback because that then you can filter good feedback from bad feedback and right uh kind of create the art that you want because uh, sometimes good art isn't for everyone and bad art is for a lot more people than good art is, weirdly enough. 
I think that's true. And I think I, Siege and, and Scott, I want to hear about y'all, y'all's process with this as well. But to me, it's all about who's giving this feedback, right? And you have to gauge that a little bit. If yes. someone who's giving you feedback is someone that you trust and respect and you know trusts and respects you, then take what they're saying and hear it because they're probably they probably love you and they're probably trying to help you. Um, and if it hurts, it's probably good advice, right? Mm-hmm. But if it's mm-hmm. coming from someone who is just, doesn't know you, is outside of your, you know, like doesn't, I mean, they also might be, the other person might just be blowing smoke and just saying nice things even though, you know, so that's a whole other thing. But it, when you're getting negative feedback, especially from people who aren't someone you respect, it's just a random person who's read your work or it's just someone who maybe a non-theater person who's read your work and they're just like, I didn't like it. You don't have to take that. And it's it's just a gauging of who you're speaking to, who you're receiving this feedback from and whether or not to take it. And much like Travis said, like, take it or leave it. Who cares? If it makes you feel bad from a person you don't respect, then it's probably not good advice anyway. Scott, Sage, Sage, Sage. I'll go. Um, I mean, mine's just coming from more of an actor perspective. Um, I actually have people that I go to and I ask when they come to see my stuff. Um, I know Scott and Bailey, you've been one of them uh, before. Trav, you as well. At the same time. (laughs) (laughs) People people that have known me for a long time and have seen my work, I go to them and ask them anyway because I just know it's a process and I'm going to be forever asking for notes from people. I think the advice that I don't go go for is the unsolicited advice. Um, I have a friend that has cornered me several times and has talked to me about my training and what I should be doing next. And I'm always like... I always remind him, I'm like, I didn't ask you. (laughs) So, I mean, honestly, the hardest part of feedback for me that I'm finding that I'm slowly getting better at is I have a really hard time watching or listening to myself. And I I know that that's critical, like going back and watching videos or listening to things and being critical of myself because usually it's just... It's just a shame spiral when I do that. But now I have to, I'm, I'm getting better about sitting down and watching myself and learning from that as sure. well. Sure. Scat? Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm very similar to you, Bailey. It's, it's really about who I'm getting it from. If I know the people, uh, I'm processing that on a couple different levels. How much uh, I dig their work. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. for example, um, how much I don't dig their work, but respect them. So I'm going to listen. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't like what your vibe, but you're a smart person and I'll, I'll, I'll listen to you. Sure. And then there's, you know, there's people that I would just totally blow off and just respectfully nod my head at it. It's really interesting because, um, we've talked about the workshop and I'll hype it later on, on in the show that we're getting ready to do that, um, CJ and Bailey are going to be in and I'm directing and we've been talking a lot about, Oh, I'm going to how... quit by the way. I don't know if I told you that. No, you're Keep not. No, I'm no, you're <laughs> you, you're going to need the money. I'm going to let you know if I quit. Yeah, you're right. I just quit my job. So I do need the money. You're right. Um, Never mind. Can I have my spot back? Take that back. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like how we're gonna rec- how we're gonna do that and get the the feedback and notes, we're ultimately gonna do a survey um, because if you're like me and trying to give notes, like Trav and I had a reading last week, and I am the worst at giving on the spot notes. Me too. Even, even I right that. after, I need a night. I need a yeah. night to process. Um, and to think about it and to get my head wrapped around everything, especially if I'm doing a reading and I'm in it, then I definitely can't 
focus on on the whole. But yeah, I and and I think Trav also made a really good point. It's it's what you're trying to do. And I think as I've gotten older, because I used to be, especially as an actor, would be very like mm, about criticisms and notes and that sort of thing. And then as I was a writer and as a director, um, I slowly opened myself up to it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's the key. I think you gotta you got to let it process no matter yeah. where you're getting that from and really think about what you're trying to do. I had a friend of mine once who was like, well, nobody got it. Nobody, they just didn't get it. And it's like, <laughs> that's the answer to your problem. Right. They didn't get it. Right. So back up and see what you have to do to make them get it. Right. So yeah. Yeah. Great and question though. Great question. And sometimes people are just bad at feedback. That's something yes. to be aware of. Girl. Like yeah. People it's, are just bad e- at feedback. it's ego and timing and 100 yeah. other things. And, and you kind of just have to suss those things out, but it's, it's really about swallowing your pride sometimes and just hearing it all, no matter what. Sure. Yeah. Um, yep. and you know, and like, uh, I recently did a reading of a, a, a play that I'm in like a first draft of maybe 10 of, it was called, uh, well, it was called lineage of Jesus, but within that discussion, we changed it to mothers of God. It's um, great. and it, which because of that discussion, but we were very clear at the beginning, we were like, we don't need legitimate feedback about this. We are opening up a forum of discussion. If anybody has anything to say, great. If you don't please leave but mm-hmm. we don't care. We're not looking for anything legitimate. People, There were a few people that went a little too far with feedback that were like, mm-hmm. well, let me tell you how to write a play. And we were like, whoa, <laughs> we're in draft one. We're just getting ideas this out. This is and these raw. Are people, yeah, like we're just getting thoughts out. Like we're not, we're just building characters right now. Like we, this has so much, so, so much more to go, but it also drove some really beautiful things like finding a whole new title. Yeah. Right. Mm. So like yeah. you can do it in any way. And yes, they were all actors who had just read it. And like Scott said, like that can be difficult. But that's why we gave them the out like leave. If you have nothing to say, go. But if you do like stay and like give some a little input. And there was some really great stuff and some really not so great stuff. And then some just like blatantly like kind of I just want to make like knock you down a peg stuff. And when and when you feel that in your stomach, don't take that advice because they yeah. are probably actually trying to hurt you. Yeah. Um and uh, to add to that, too, it goes back to just uh, the Chekhov saying of killing your darlings. Yeah. Um, and just, like, don't be afraid. I just did a workshop where I took a script I worked on for eight years and just rewrote the whole thing from the ground up and made yeah. it a two-hour epic instead. And Well, Brecht rewrote just about every one of his plays about 20 times. So, be <laughs> <laughs> fair. I think it's allowed uh, at this point. So, hey, hey, hey. Speaking of Brecht, we should get into it. Welcome <laughs> all to uh, Theater Theater, I think is what it's called, right? Theater? Yes, correct. Theater, right? R-E and then E-R. R-E then an E-R. Okay, you're right. Thank you. You got it right. Oh, you got a shirt. I got you guys shirts. Yes. Oh, I've been wearing it. We got... we got merch on the... I got into a discussion with a checkout guy at Big Bear. His daughter is a student at North Carolina School of the Arts, and he's like, so what do you do on that podcast? You got on your shirt there. Well, hey, guy at Big Bear, I'm going to tell you right now. (laughs) Theater Theater is a theater podcast uh, for theater people, actually nerds. Theater Theater nerds. nerds. I got to read the thing. I'm going to hold on. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Theater Theater, the theater podcast for theater nerds made by three theater makers from the L.A. theater scene. I'm Jay Bailey Bertram. I'm C.J. Merriman. And I'm Scott Leggett. And each week we get together. Nice tea on the end of that. That was a good plosive. Thank you. Each week we get together to discuss, debate, and disseminate the evolutions of the great playwrights by uh, taking a macro look at three of their works and this is part 
two of three. The of deuce. Our, the deuce. Of our miniseries. <laughs> Hot Shots Part Two. Um, of our miniseries covering the works of Bertolt, Bertie, Brecht. That's right. It's three podcast opera. It's a jolly holiday with you, Bert. Boo. <laughs> Can't use that as an ending song now. All right, I'm going to delete uh, it. Uh, <laughs> no, you ruined it. Uh, last week we covered Ball, uh, his first uh, work. And this week we are covering, covering The Mother. And next week we'll be covering Caucasian Chalk circle so we're taking a macro look at these three works because one was his first work one was a middle work and one was in late stages uh and we're just charting that evolution and and, and join uh, joining us for this Matt. entire miniseries is someone who has a, a deep relationship with brecht has definitely read more brecht than all of us uh and and oh, has even right. adapted him um he's a writer performer producer brecht aficionado and friend to us all dra 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 how you doing? Doing pretty good, you know what I mean? Yeah. I wanna like I think we should make some get Ryan Thomas Johnson to make us a few stingers that sound well, I guess a couple of them do sound a bit like radio stingers. That's yeah. what I really like. I like when it sounds like KKRD. <laughs> you know, like, okay. The catch the wave. W-A-B-E. The vibe. We just need a soundboard where we can press buttons, too. Be be yeah, yeah, we just need Toilet hotkeys. flush. Toilet hotkeys, flush. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Trav, thanks for joining us. We appreciate, we appreciate having you here. Yeah, bro. Um, Rob, thanks for having me. Something else we got to do today, and I figure we go ahead and get into it because yeah. it's going to be long, and there's a lot of it, and I have a lot to say. But I, it, Travis or any of you, stop me if you know something about this play that I don't say that you think is worth telling, okay? Because I'm about to chart his entire writing career in theater and film, okay? And there's like 45 of them. Right. It's going to take a second. Um, I'm not doing any poetry. I'm not doing any of that. But this is a little segment that we like to call. Chronology. 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 <laughs> so I'm pretty pumped about this because there's so much to get into. And I'm going to like kind of rapid fire it so that because there's a lot. There's a lot. Um, yeah. So stop me if you if you want to stop me if you want to talk about anything specific or if you want to correct me about anything because this a lot of this was like quick reference like because I was just like I've never heard of that show I don't want to know about it I just okay um, or I couldn't say, find anything about it. Do you want me to say good or bad because I have read every Brecht play? <laughs> Please do. Let us know if they're good or bad, um, and and we'll just go for it. But I actually got kind of excited about a couple of these plays when I was doing this research, so. I don't know. We'll see. We my, might. My. I might pick them up and read them and make some decisions. Okay. First of all, Ball. We already covered it. 1918 is when it's written. It gets first produced in 1923. Next, he writes Drums in the Night. Tromein in der Nacht. Not good. Okay, good to know. That it was written... is a zombie play, though, which is kind of cool. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, it's a. it was uh, actually performed before Ball was ever performed. It's a political comedy in five acts, but before he was, it, it was written before he was a Marxist. Yeah. So it's a little different than his later political views, but he wrote it just to make some money. He won a major German award for it, and uh, it performed a lot all over uh, uh, Germany, but isn't done so much now. Probably because, as Travis says, it's bad. The Beggar uh, was written in 1919. It really has never been produced. Have you ever read it? 
Uh, it's the one of the one acts. I'm pretty sure it right? is. It's a one. Yeah, act. it's all right. It, though the early one act, his one acts, I don't really start liking until his Leerstrux, which come after the mother. Got it. Yeah. So we'll get to those. Yeah, those are late, late Brecht. We'll get there. So a respectable wedding is the next one. Die Kleinburg in Hachensite, um, I probably said that really incorrectly. No, you did great. That sounded really good, dude. That it looked like your German. German pronunciation. Yeah. It looked all right. It looked all right. Yeah. yeah it, it, it felt right. It felt right. And the, the mouthfeel was correct. Thumbs um, up. I did take it when I was a kid. But okay, once again, uh, this is his critique on bourgeois society, which he seems to be obsessed with at this point. He's, he's doing a lot of that, good or bad. Yeah. It, it's, it's one of his one acts still. It's, it's not that bad, but yeah. it's not good. It kind of reminds me a little Chekhov y a little more than like sure. Breck. Yeah, this one uh, felt very realism based, yeah. which is not something he does very often. Uh, it, it's written in 1919, but not performed until 1926. Uh, after that, we have Driving Out a Devil, Er treibt einen Teufel aus, 1919. Uh, it doesn't, we don't have a performance date on this. It hasn't been pre performed very much, but it's a one-act farce about a boy trying to outwit the parents of a girl he wants to fuck. Good or bad, Trav? Uh, unmemorable. Honestly. Unmemorable, got it. Yeah, Perfect. I thought it was the one he did that talked about syphilis. <laughs> Maybe yeah. there might be some syphilis in there. I didn't find that in my research, no, but it's, it's very it's, possible. It's, it's like I think I'm pretty sure it's him. It's a fucking like a carnival oh, no. syphilis machine yes. or some shit. There is that one. That one's next. Well, it's the one <laughs> after the next one. So there's Lux in Tenebre or Tenebre. Tenebre. It's French. Uh, which is light and dark. Oh, excuse me. No, it's not. It's Latin. Um, it's Tenebris, then. Uh, light and Darkness. Uh, it's a political farce, good or bad? Eh, unmemorable. Okay. Honestly, before Elephant Calf, most of his stuff, other than Ball, and to me, in the Jungle of Cities, uh, is pretty unforgettable. It's pretty forgettable, honestly. Got it. Um, the Catch is the next one. That's when you were talking about. It has, like, syphilis-based yeah. something another. Uh, it's a one-act. It's not done ever. Uh, the next one is Mysteries of a Barbershop. Mysterine ein Freisursolons. <laughs> nice. <laughs> this is a screenplay that he writes. This is a half-hour German slapstick film. Sounds kind of oh, fun. Oh, all right. All then right. he writes In the Jungle of Cities. Im Go ahead. Oh, that's just the play I adapted. Yes, yes, we'll get there. And yeah, I, I have that here actually. Uh, it's in the Wikipedia. Um, in, it, it's not in oh. the jungle of cities. Um, Im Dichicht der Stadt. Stadt. Yeah. Um, originally in the jungle is what it was titled, uh, and not successful. But he rewrote it a ton and a ton, and it had some later productions that were successful that sort of brought um, it to more light. And then Travis adapted this one and uh, named it. Concrete jungle. jungle. Concrete Jungle, that's what it was. Uh, yes. Yeah, and the play was also based off Sinclair's uh, The Jungle. The Jungle, yeah. right, right, right. Uh, uh, so it was him doing an adaptation of that. And Right. Yeah, I honestly, I really like the play. My problem with the play mostly is a lot of his early work, too, has this issue, is he's very focused on just, like, the skin of his characters that aren't German. So, like, this one, he has a character... Uh, so you know my character Slink in the actual play. It's name his name is Schlink, and he's a Asian man, mm. which is very problematic. I feel, but like also on top of that, he likes to very go into like the yellow of his skin, blah right, blah right. blah, and it it just yeah. it's like I'm reading it. And I'm like, oh, this is 
kind of weird. But there were some cool like elements that made me want to adapt it into uh, black and uh, Hispanic relationships, uh, Chicano relationships, I should say. And uh, to where like, I think it's a very relevant script, but also there's something with Breck too, where the reason we never see a good Breck production is because people like to do Breck as it is on page. And Mm -hmm. you can't, you can't do Brecht right if you actually do his scripts. Right. And I think I've found that reading these, especially the mother, the one we're talking about today, where I'm like, oh, fuck, I would need to mm-hmm. rip this to shreds to put this up. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it just I couldn't just do what's on the page. It wouldn't yeah. be, especially for a modern audience. I think people would just be like, right. They would riot. Yeah. But even if you read like Brecht on theater, he talks about it where uh, he was adapting for his audience at the time. But he thought that as time progressed, the artists should be adapting these stories to their audience or else you can't talk to your audience from the past. So that's what like concrete jungle was. And that's why it felt so authentic in the Epic fashion was because what I did was I made it, I utilized his Epic theories in the adaption to make it more modern and fit with the modern audience as opposed to just kind of like here we're gonna put this up and you're gonna just see it as it is and you're just gonna watch it like people watch classic shakespeare being done and that play is published right like in theory somebody could put it up or no concrete jungle no uh right now it's uh it was only able to be produced because we got special uh rights from the brecht estate right to do it uh yeah. but if somebody wants to do it again they could contact me but they still would have to get approval from, from the brecht yeah they'd still got have to it. reach got out it. to the brecht heirs and their lawyer and stuff and that's most adaptions like the adaption of ball that we read that also is the same case sure, uh, sure. i haven't looked into publishing it because i wrote it as just an exercise in seeing if i could do epic theater and the sure. fact that i was able to get it produced and get brecht the Brex to just go, hey, you could do this for free. Put it on. Was yeah. all just on. amazing of That's me rad. just uh, throwing my dick around, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, it was Brecht super. It was, it was awesome. We all got to see it, and uh, 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 it was um, it was Brechtian for sure. The director definitely went very Brecht with it, and we we all had a blast. But it was it created a lot of conversation, and it kind of felt like the first time I had seen something where. I actually got to step out and talk about it for a while with people. Sure. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, because of COVID and everything, mm-hmm. I just hadn't seen anything oh, that I man. felt yeah, like was yeah, like yeah, discussable. Yeah. Like I had seen like Head Over Heels and like some Shakespeare and like you know, but like nothing right. that I could really like sink my teeth into. So that was a blast. Um. Anyway, uh, in the Jungle of Cities is that one. After that, we have the life of Edward II of England and this uh, or uh, Lieben Edward de Zweiten von England, um, uh, which is an adaptation of a Marlowe play. Yes, mm-hmm. Christopher Marlowe. Yes. Um, and then after that, which is oh, a have really you read that, int- Trev? It is we'll what it ahead. is. It's, yeah. If you it's like, an adaptation. He does a lot like of these. Marlowe, Shakespearean, like, yeah. shit, that's basically what it is. Sure. Um, Scott, what were you saying? No, I saw a production of it that was sort of a fusion of Brecht and Marlowe and oh. then put through a very modern filter and was sort of um kind of fun was that the Marlowe did uh uh school of night did it a couple years ago was it the Marlowe play that oh i don't know in? i don't know if it was that it wasn't oh, okay it wasn't here it wasn't in okay. LA. it was okay, in chicago but um well not that yeah i just i was wondering if that was the same Marlowe script oh Sorry. maybe maybe out loud. no no 
After that, we have Downfall of the Egotist Johann Fatzer. Der Untergang des Egosten Johann Fatzer. Um, but this is, it's, it's considered, a lot of people call it the Fatzer Fragments. This is an unfinished work, but still fragments have been published oh, randomly. yes. And yes, some have yes. been performed I've... even most recently as 2010. Um, and Brecht himself considered the Fatzer Fragments as his highest standard in technicality as a writer. Oh, wow. But he never finished mm. it. Yeah, I've only <laughs> heard about it. I've never read it. Yeah. Um, after that is Man Equals Man, a play I read in college. Yeah. Um, or also translated as A Man's A Man. Man East Man. Man East Man. Man East Man. Um, uh, this is his first show with what he would call the Brecht Collective. These are the people he surrounds himself with for the next 40 years. Yeah. Um, but uh, Brecht himself directs the OG production in Berlin with Peter Lorre. Wow. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, then. Really uh, good play, by the way. I oh, actually, Man Equals Man. Yeah, I love yeah, Man Equals that, Man. Actually. That was the one I was going to suggest to y'all for the early work because it's just, it's cool. It's dope because it's all about just how a normal man becomes a nationalist. And it's yeah. done in this like mm. comedic, just like absurd fashion. And you really get to see like the early starts to where he's starting to come from with epic theater. Now that I think about it, this might have been the first Brecht play that was handed to me in college. After I had done Three Penny in high school, but somebody had handed this to me in college, and I remember loving it and being like, "Well, if he writes things like Three Penny and Man Equals Man, I'm gonna love him." <laughs> but he doesn't really do this like this again, mm-hmm. right? It's a little, mm, mm, it's proto Brecht. He 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 goes so much further than what um, what Man Equals Man is if that makes sense yeah. and we'll get there so the next one is the elephant calf das elephant cob um it's a surreal <laughs> surrealistic farce that is meant to be performed in the foyer of man equals man so it was originally the penultimate scene from man equals man but he pulled it out and added it as an appendix with the note this should be performed in the foyer as like an intermission and and man equals man so it's a play within a play to be performed while the play is not happening wow that's that's cool that got me excited like these are the kind of things that like i think when i'm first learning about brecht i'm getting excited about because people are like and he's changing the game he is the dogma 95 of theater like he is doing it (laughs) we'll talk about dogma 95 later but But I, well, we'll do it now. Dogma 95 is this. It's very cool. Was a controversial, controversial um, film movement by mostly Lars von von Trier um, and Thomas something. Yeah, there were a few. Um, Smith. And Kevin Smith. Yeah, Dogma (laughs) made in 95. No, um, it was a, it's, it was this film movement. It was kind of like a German French, like film movement of like, actually it was Denmark, Sweden. I I don't know. It was a lot of things. Yeah. But they were sort of like, what if we, like, first of all, producers are in charge too much. And uh, uh, the art has gone away from film. What if we, like, took it back and we made films that were, like, like broke every rule and, like, just gave, like, Hmm. a whole new kind of um, revamp or retool or or refresh of cinema? Yeah, there was a whole manifesto that went along with it. They yes. had, you had to use rules. You had rule. to do it inexpensively. You couldn't use any title credits. You right. couldn't 
Um, the movie about it is cr- Criterion, like it's a Criterion documentary. Yeah, like it's, it's like it's pretty, and they chal- and they got in people's faces about it too. Like they they were like, "Hey, Steven Spielberg, see if you can make a movie for yeah for ten thousand dollars. Here's your camera, go." And he was yeah. like, well, "I got I got stuff going on." Right. And so, um, yeah, it was a cool thing. And some of the works that came out of it are pretty breaking the waves. Extraordinary. Yeah, breaking the waves uh, is the big one. Oof. Yeah. Um, and then what was it? Dogtown? What was the one with Nicole Kidman? Uh, yes, Dogtown. The t- yeah, with Bjork. Yes. Was that the one with Bjork? I think so. so that came Ledger. later. Anyway, uh, nice digression. You're though, talking about Lords of Dogtown, which is a phenomenal flick. Directed by the same person who directed the first Twilight film. Okay. And 13. <laughs> and 13. That's true. Um, which is... Okay. Okay. We're not going to get into that. The <laughs> Elephant Cap. Uh, after the Elephant Cap. Okay. So then we have Little Mahogany or Mahogany Songspiel. Uh, this is a this is Kurt Weil and Breck's first Viol. outing. Right? So, like, they're sort of... This is their first time, like, actually, like working together they really knew each other before this and had actually done some things but this is them experimenting together with a cantata um so <laughs> this cantata is them trying like starting to build a larger work together that doesn't come out for a long time so we'll get to that because uh, what oh i was gonna say my unpopular opinion is mahogany is better than three penny Oh, interesting. Yeah, this is more of like a song cycle than a musical, but I I think that's that's oh, so it's his songs opinion. for a new world. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but Little Mahogany turns into a bigger show later that I think maybe a lot of people would would consider a better musical. Um, the, it does better. Um, the Three Penny Opera is next. So this is the one most people know, uh, The Beggar's Opera. It's based on an old, actually British, um, opera called The Beggar's Opera. Um, and they turn it into, Viol and, Bre- and Breck turn it into this uh, play with music, if you will. Um, yeah. And uh, this is their first outing with Elizabeth Hauptman as well, who we'll talk a lot more about because she did some of the lyrics for Little Mahogany. And then she did a lot of his other work later um, and may have written more than she's ever been credited for. And, and with this one too, I, I, I think I mentioned it in the last podcast, but uh, she was the original one who was uh, commissioned to adapt Beggar, Beggar's Opera into German. Mm. And when uh, Vile and Brecht were asked to put up a show during, to start off uh, Piscator's uh, season, they didn't have mahogany ready as a full show because it was little mahogany which as you're saying was still in like kind of cabaret form and they mm. wanted to make it a grander musical so brecht was like oh i'm with this woman who is uh adapting beggar's opera and i think there's a very good i a very good opportunity for me and vile to work together and to kind of utilize this piece of work to uh, get kind of the i get the idea of uh Kami pop that your theater wants. And so they kind of, the three of them kind of embarked on creating three penny opera from right. her adapting. it. Unfortunately, in- she doesn't get any credit. So that her, her name's not on anything. And she may have written more than, you know, than even oh, correct. Yeah. But um, many of these songs have been covered a thousand times. Mac, the knife, I think is the biggest one has been done a million times. Pirate Jenny is another great one. Um, there's a GW Pabst film that's in the criterion collection has a really great criterion Blu-ray transfer. Actually, you should check it out. Um, and then another movie uh, that has, as Raul Julia as Mac the Knife that opens with Roger Daltrey of The Who um, singing the opening number. 
Um, it's been done off and on Broadway many, many times. Um, I think there was one with um, Cindy Lauper or something. I don't know. There's mm-hmm. been a million. Yeah, of there's them. been a lot. Mm-hmm. Tom Waits like has a killer. What keeps mankind alive? Cover. Oh yes, yeah, that's actually a great it one. Might be yeah, the, yeah. the best Brecht music ever written or well, performed. Well, it's vile, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Well, Brecht vile. Brecht didn't even write the, the lyrics. Yeah. Nah, I think it was Elizabeth. Well, I, maybe. I don't know. She's more of a lyricist than he is, but he is a poet, so it definitely could be him. Um, but we, Three Penny Opera is is one I, I knew first, so I have some nostalgia for it. I don't know that I love it, um, but I was going to direct it and really rip it to shreds and make it like a whole new thing, and then COVID hit, and then that theater company died forever. We love you, Chris and Boulay. Um, okay. Next after that is The Flight Across the Ocean, Der Oceanflug. Um, originally called Lindbergh's Flight or Lindbergh Flug, um, it was his first technical ever. How do you say it? Leerstuk. Leerstruck. Leerstruck. I don't know. There's no R after the T, <laughs> so I don't know. But it's a. It's what a lot of people would call a, a learning play. Is is sort of how that's translated. Um, it's inspired by Charles Lindbergh's biography. Uh, his account. Uh, about his uh, his flight in the spirit of St. Louis. Um, but then after it came out that Lindbergh was a Nazi sympathizer <laughs> and basically... Not just a Nazi sympathizer. Like, he yeah. was... Uh, he was uh... He was promoting and giving money to start one here in the United yes. States. And yep. he basically oh, yes. created the idea of terror bombing. Um, so they removed Lindbergh's name from the title and the script. So it got changed to the flight across the ocean, which is how it would now be billed. And if you... Um, in the script, when they ask him his name, it used to say, my name is is Charles Lindbergh, and now it, the, the, it says, my name doesn't matter, and he never gives a name. So it's just more about the idea than it is about the man, uh, which is uh, interesting. Yeah, it's a pretty good, it's an all right play, too. It's a it radio good. play. It should also be noted that it's right. a radio play. It um, was written not to be for the Baden a music festival right. and became a radio and, yeah. and then ended up only that's, being produced as a radio. Yeah, that's how yeah. it got big. Uh, yeah. Also, with the Leerstucks, it's uh, important to also note that these learning plays, the way they were set up was he would take... It, it, it wasn't always just one play. It was two plays. Right. And the two plays kind of served as uh, two sides of an argument. Mm. Yes. So and the that's... second one to this was called The Lesson on Consent or The Baden-Baden Lesson on Consent. Um, and this was uh, for that same festival. It was his sort of second piece, companion piece, like you said. Um, and then in, in this, he's presenting, he's presenting both of them sort of for the first time as this new genre of theater, um, as kind of as these these learning plays, right? He's like, this is new. Come check this out, and it gets him a little bit of notice. Um, then in uh, the, the next thing he does is an actual musical. This is called Happy End. Happy end, or in mm. German, happy end. Mm. Um, three penny sequel. Yeah, kind of. It. So it's a musical with a plot very similar to the to Guys and Dolls. It's not based on the Damon Runyon short story, but it is sort of based on. It. It's like it you feels gotcha. like it is. Like right. It's kind of inspired by the, by it at least, but it's another Kurt Vile collab, um, and Elizabeth Hop, uh, Hopman is is part of it but this time she's under a pseudonym dorothy lee and apparently 
Breck tried to take full credit for this one, but she didn't let that happen and forced him to give her billing alongside the two men. Um, also, everyone hated it, so who cares? Um, apparently, it's not very good. The one after the oh, do you like it's it, right. Trav? I, you like it? It's all right. It? I I have the uh, I do have the record. Okay. On vinyl, I have way too many Breck vinyls. Sure. It's the most hipster thing I probably do <laughs> is collect Breck vinyls. Interesting. Interesting. I'd love Stop to have like a B. Arthur singing pirate jetting on vinyl or something. Like that. <laughs> I have, I have um, David Bowie singing the Alabama song. There you go. Which is kind of dope. That's kind of cool. Um, all right. So then after that, we have the rise and fall of the city of mahogany. This is the one from earlier. The little mahogany is has now been adapted into an epic, massive um, thing. Uh, so three penny. Yeah, so that's kind of the, that's actually, a lot of people feel that way. So they write this large political satire that both seems to take down, like, American politics as well as the Weimar Republic, for some, like, it somehow is doing both. Um, but another one of his works where sex workers are seen as a problem and are abused, and I, I think that's one reason why today it's not done as much. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say they're seen as a problem as opposed to they're seen as the they're they're the ones who found mahogany you know they just it's them creating the society it's not really that i guess yeah i was just reading reviews and one of them was talking about how it's very much about like sex workers are a plague and here's why but i think societally is maybe what it's trying to say and unfortunately maybe it doesn't well it's because uh he uses sex workers as a metaphor for capitalism because that's Sure. That, that, like that's usually what it is. Is just like let it keep it down dirty, but it's still like this is this is the capitalism metaphor. And mahogany is all about capitalism. Yeah. Honestly, I think this plays one of the most relevant things to today. Sure. Having uh, living in the world where everything we do is commoditized, and For sure. we're in the internet age where we have to buy DLC and we have to buy these trials to get fucking our tv in different channels agreed i have about 45 more plays to go so i'm gonna keep going a lot faster but steven sondheim was asked to translate uh city of mahogany and he said no i don't like that that's a terrible play um (laughs) so then after that uh uh we have two companion pieces again these are these are what are actually called uh, school operas or school operas. So it's sort of the opera version of the Lierstuk, right? So this is, uh, one is called He Said Yes. The other one is called He Said No. He Said Yes is an opera specifically um, uh, uh, by Kurt Weill uh, with Brecht and Elizabeth Hopman actually translated an English version of a Japanese no drama. Hmm. So she took a no play that had been translated into English and she adapted it into German and then Brecht and Weil turned it into an opera. Holy shit. But then the <laughs> second companion piece was all Brecht, but it was never set to music. They just never set the, they never finished the music. So mm. it's just a play. Um, kind of interesting. Um, uh, okay, then the decision 
or the measures taken is an eight section Learstruck cantata with Hans Eisler. This is his first time working with Hans Eisler. Um, Brecht banned the play himself from performance after some critics said they believed it read as an apologia for t- totalitarianism and mass murder. Uh, but Berliner Ensemble performed it in 1997 as like a reclamation of it. And since then, people have reread it as a very different thing. Um, St. Joan of the Stockyards or Die Heilg. Johanna der Schlochthof. <laughs> I don't think that's it. Um, this is not performed for a long time. It was written 29. He doesn't get it performed till 59. Top so, tier, though. Huh? It's one of his top tier ones. Yeah, people really like this one. It's produced a lot, actually. It's written a- around the success of Three Penny. It follows Joan Dark, D-A-R-K. Uh, it is a. It's set in the Starkyards of Chicago. And it mm. sounds fucking radical, and I want to read it. Um, it's but it's the Joan story of, of Joan of Arc. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're gonna find that. This is his first of three Joan of Arcs, by the way. Then he does the exception and the rule, which is a short Learstruck. Then he does the mother, which we're gonna mm. never talk about ever on this podcast. <laughs> um, and then he does. Uh, I, I I think it's cool Wampa. Short film about a home about homelessness and politics in Weimar era. Hmm. Then he does the Seven Deadly Sins, which is a French ballet with music by Vile. Then he has round heads and pointed heads, round heads and pointed heads. Die Rundkampf und die Spitzkopf. That, um, uh, that one's actually really good, but it's like a first draft. Yes, because he got distracted by like Nazis kicking him out of his home country. Yes. Um, oh, that old thing. Yeah, and yeah. this one's really interesting because it's an, it's sort of like an epic anti-Nazi parable, uh, but it's in collaboration with like all of these um, Brecht collective people. It's Margaret Steffen, who he ends up working with on a bunch of these next few works, Elizabeth Hopman and Hans Eisler. Uh, this is the first time he considers the entertainment value of theater, in his opinion. That's a quote by him, not by me, where he said, this is the first time where I was like, what if I made theater kind of for entertainment and not completely <laughs> about like teaching? And though it is still political and has its things, it's I think that was his as close as he ever got. Um, then he has the Horatians and the Kuratians. Um, and this is a retelling of the story of the Horati and Karasis. I think I'm saying those right. Kuratius, Karasius. Uh, the two choruses are the main characters of this piece, which I think is kind of interesting. So you have hmm. two choruses and they're the leading parts. Mm, that's cool. um, that's then you cool. have Fear and Misery of the Third Reich. Uh, this is also known as The Private Life of the Master Race. Um, it's one of Bertolt Brecht's most famous plays and the first of his op- openly not anti-Nazi works. So also it's worth saying with this one, it was while he was in hiding from the Nazis in Finland, I believe. Sure. Uh, so this is not him writing as Brecht. And instead he was, he changed his entire like style of writing solely to get that paycheck to be able to get his voice out. But also, like, they wouldn't have hired him because he was a communist. Sure. Mm. So he he did it under a pseudonym, and he changed up just his entire writing style to not be recognized with this. All right. After that, That's he does fun. Senora Carrara's Rifles, one act written with Margaret Steffen, his new collaborator from the, from the last uh, couple pieces. Then he does Life of Galileo, 
this is a play with music with Margaret Stephan again and Hans Eisler. Um, and I'm pretty sure there is a version of this, but it's just called Galile- Galileo. But it's the, it's the it's the same piece um, that's on Broadway HD starring Topol. Oh, oh no shit! Yeah, all right. Uh, so I want to watch it. Um, the next two are another two short uh, uh, teaching learning plays. Um, the first one is How Much Is Your Iron? The second one is Donson. Um, and it's, uh, they're, they're sort of calling out the weapons dealers who made the world wars possible. That's kind of hmm. what, they're, what they're tackling. Um, after that, you have Mother Courage and her children, Mutter Courage und her Kinder. Um, uh, it, this is his big anti-fascism play. This is the one we studied mm-hmm. in school. This is the one Meryl Streep has fucking t- done on Broadway. This is the you know with a Kushner adaptation. I'm pretty sure. Um, like this is a this is his big one. I think for most people's brains, right? Sure. Uh, that and Three Penny. Three Penny. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. I'm not that big on Other Courage. Yeah, but I think it's the one that most yeah. people non-theater minded would maybe know. Definitely, I think Ruins a better play, but oh. Yeah, the Nottage piece. Yeah, I would agree with that. We talked about Mother Courage a lot because it's obviously it's sort of a sort of an adaptation of it. Um, we agree. I think I agree. Do you guys agree with? That? Have you read Mother Courage in a while? If I have, it's been half a lifetime ago, and I loved Ruined. So <laughs> I love Ruined. Ruined yeah. rules. So I don't I mean, love Ruined. I respect yeah. well, Ruined. You know what I mean. You know what yes. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same, same thing. I, As a matter of fact, I just had a conversation about. Intimate Apparel is my definite Nottage favorite, and they're like, yeah. "What's your least favorite?" And I'm like, "Ruined," just because it's it's just it's so brutal. It's so I just brutal. bought Intimate Apparel and shipped it to a friend because they'd never read it, and I was like, "You have to." You so have to read it. It was, was actually the... Brittany, Brittany Wheeler. What was oh. the other Nottage piece we read? Sweat. Oh fucking okay, sweat. Bitch, yeah. please. Sweat rules. <laughs> I saw that please. in in OSF. At OSF. Okay, I'm. After Mother Courage, we have The Trial of Lu- Lucilus. Lucilus? Lucilus? Lucilus. Um, this is a radio play. Um, and then he, like, years later, basically uses the exact script the exact script to be turned into an opera, but it's called The Condemnation of Lucilus. Mm. Um, but, so I'll skip that later because it's kind of lame. Um, then he has The Judith of Shimoda. Shimoda. Um, this is an unfinished work later finished and produced in 2006 by the estate, um, or by the Berliner, excuse me. Then, uh, Mr. Puntilla and his, <laughs> and his man, Matty. Um, this is an epic comedy inspired by Commedia del Arte. Fun. Then the good person of Szechuan, Szechuan, an epic comedy inspired by, uh, or excuse me. No, it's not. It's one of his more well-reviewed works actually. And it's set in China. It is not a comedy. Um, have you, I have never read this. It's, oh, I've read it, yeah. it's one of my, I think it's my top three or five. Okay. But it's like, the whole idea is that to be, it's kind of like, we've all seen The Good Place. Where, sure. it's, where like the whole overall theory is we live in a world where it's impossible to be all the, purely good. And that's kind of the whole thesis of it. Is sure. It's like these gods give this woman uh, all this money to save her shop because she's such a good person and then she essentially has a mental breakdown yeah and becomes her like twin brother so it becomes like a kind of like a dual character thing though still doing a lot of brechtian things i think this one originally was produced a little bit more narratively and like has a little bit more of a plot and so i think there is a more um i think people who are not as theater minded might relate to it more than some of his other work which is it's why a, it has a, has done well. It's a really good play. 
Um, then we have the Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui. Uh, this is the pl- uh, the the play is a satirical allegory of the rise of Adolf Hitler um, uh, before World War II. But I don't know much about it. I couldn't find a whole lot about it. it but it was produced basically 20 years after he wrote it. It, it uh, basically what it does that's really cool about it is it follows a uh, like a, a a gangster going around town, kind of just putting pressure on all these businesses to kind of get them to uh, fall under his protection gotcha. and how he gains power that. And then like, it'll switch from like the scenes with the gangster to are we yeah. to Hitler just kind of doing Hitler things, but they play Hitler kind of like a glorious bastards Hitler where he's mm. just like very goofy and sure. stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of, it kind of does that. So it makes like the evil rah, mustache trolling as we see in like most like, Sure. Uh, Nazi films of Hitler, but he's a gangster. And then you see the goofy Hitler who Hitler was. Uh, Brecht actually went to a Hitler rally once when he was young and left it going, that guy's a fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, that tracks. Um, after that, he does hangmen also die, exclamation point. Um, he, th- this is a, a short noir film directed by Fritz, Fritz Lang. All right. Yeah, that's and the one is, they collaborated on. He's yeah. credited as Bert. Bert. Bert Brecht. Um, the Visions of Simone Machard is the next one, his second Joan of Arc story. Uh, but this time she is leading the resistance against the Nazis, and he wrote it in Los Angeles. Ooh. Pretty nice. cool. Yeah. I kind of want to read that one. Uh, the next one is The Duchess of uh, Malfi. It's an adaptation of uh, a John Webster play from the 1800s. Yeah. Then he mm-hmm. does Schweik in the Second World War. Uh, this is a sequel to a novel that he didn't write. Um, it also was made into a TV series in Portugal for some reason. <laughs> oh, play a good then, Schweik, Bailey. Huh? You play a good Schweik. Would I? Yeah. Okay. Good to know. It's a dude trying to steal a dog and then getting caught stealing a dog, and then he just tries to talk his way out of it. So he just goes into these nonsense monologues. That are How do they hilarious. make a whole TV series out of that? I think it's I a have real no culture. clue. Um, okay, then you have the Caucasian Chalk Circle, which we'll talk about next time. Then you have Antigone, his adaptation of Antigone. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does The Days of the Commune, which is a dramatization of the rise and fall of the Paris Commune, which is kind of cool. cool. He story. did The Tutor, which is an adaptation of a Linz play from 1774. He does The Condemnation of Lucillus, which I said I was going to skip, and I just read it anyway. It's the <laughs> opera he made out of the radio play. Then he does Report from Hernberg. Which is a youth choir song cycle with explanations of Hernberg. each song. Huh? Hernberg. Sorry, I Hernberg. What did I say? Hernberg? No. Dirty Gertie? Hernberg. Hernberg. It's funny to say. It's a youth choir song cycle, which is interesting, with explanations of each song before they sing them, written by Brecht. <laughs> okay. um, then he does Coriolanus, which is an adaptation of a, uh, uh, um, of. Uh, the William Shakespeare, Shakespeare play, obviously, but this is an example of him processing the influences that he uh, that he's having on um, Mao Zedong, um, who he mm. loved. This is you know who's huh. the, the start of the uh, People's Republic of China and all that. So he like loved this dude. Um, then the trial of Joan of Arc of at Rhone, fourteen thirty one. This is his third attempt at the story, but it's a more literal depiction of Joan of Arc. Then he does Turnadot, which is the loosely based on the Comedia play of the same name. Then he does Don Juan, an adaptation of the Moliere play Don Juan. 
Then he does Trumpets and Drums, his final play, which is an adaptation of the Farquhar play, The Recruiting Officer. And oh, a lot of people think boy. that Hauptmann actually wrote this one. But um, because he was not, I mean, he, he was, just. He's getting killed by a Nazi doctor. Yeah, bad things were happening. Um, yeah. But that was his final play. So, yeah, I just read like 5,000 plays to you. If any of those sounded interesting, listener, please go check them out. I know that was a lot to get into, but we got, we got something else we want to talk about today, which is a play, The Mother. I don't have a shit ton to say about it, but I have enough to say about it. So I want to yeah. hear y'all's <clears throat> thoughts on this. CJ, yeah. can you do me a favor, though? Yeah. Break it down. CJ's breakdown. A poor Russian mother is worried about her son, Pavel, who is getting involved and organizing for what eventually becomes the Bolshevik Revolution. However, it doesn't take long before she is drawn in and becomes quite the revolutionary herself. Boom. There it is. Yeah, it's kind of, I, got, I was like, yeah. what can I n noodle around with and make this cute or funny? I was like, yeah, no, I don't need to. Uh, um, no. Go ahead. Proud go ahead. I, I, so, like, one of the things that I did not like this play for all the reasons that, that get under my skin about Brecht anyway, but um, I didn't hate it. There were things I thought were interesting, but one of the things that became clear because people are like, this is a really, this this has a lot of humor in it. And I'm like, yeah, I guess in kind of a German communist way, it's got humor <laughs> in it. But like, I, 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 I was waiting for m more to it than that. Like, I, 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 I got it pretty quick. I got it. I knew what was going to happen pretty quick. Um, and so I'm interested to see what everybody has to say. Yeah, I kind of want to know, uh, this was a Travis pick. So, Travis, why did you choose this one? And what, like, what was your initial reasoning? And then, like, what, what are your feelings on this play? Uh, yeah, so I chose this because this is what Brecht scholars would classify as the ultimate example of epic theater. And what he was trying to get at with his plays, uh, they 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 would a lot of them will say that this is kind of like the one that he was able to hit a final draft with and get all his points out before the Nazis took power and stuff. Um, so I wanted to utilize that as an example. It's also honestly my favorite Brecht play. Um, it's it's very close to St. Joan of the Stockyards, hmm. um, but I really like I really respect like what this does. Um, yeah, uh, so this, well, the, the coolest thing about this is this is kind of him giving the instruction booklet to his people at the time of how to have this revolution as fascism was taking over his country. Um, they, they created this play to be to the, where the set can be moved outside or they didn't even need a set at all in case the Nazis would lock them out of the theater. Uh, but also on top of that, every scene is him kind of indoctrinating his audience. He has, he just will, he'll spell out uh, the idea behind Marxism and communism. He would be like, this is ways we could pass out the pamphlets without being totally obvious when we're getting cracked down on. Uh, this is how we can get the names from our, uh, from our allies while, while under uh, guard. 
Uh, and on top of that, he utilizes a lot of the uh, breaking the fourth wall and talking to the audience in it, especially during the May Day scene. Uh, and it's, it's just stuff like that that I really respect about it is that he created it almost as just this instruction booklet to his people. Yeah, this is Hitler was gaining power, right, in Germany, yeah. and and um, apparently during a performance, the Nazis arrested the leading actor just yep. because they didn't want people to see this play, right? So it has a bit of that, like, hot. yeah, it's I mean, it's hot, and yeah. <laughs> it, it, we talked about maybe like what? Uh, it's been a while now, but the everything that was happening in, um, um, oh shit, where was it? Oh shit. Oh, Belarus. What? Belarus, thank you. Sorry, oh, the, sorry. Yeah. I don't know why Belarus. I couldn't remember. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say Beirut, and I was like, I know that's not it. Belarus, um, everything that's going on there, there's this theater company, that the Belarus Theater Company, and they um, had to go underground because everything they were doing was getting shut down, and now they still produce theater there, but the actor, they produce it from outside of the country, and the Hot. actors put, a, like, they put up a show in random places, and you don't know where the show's going to be. It gets, like, sent out. Uh, you know, randomly, and then actors are putting their lives on the line to perform these shows, and mm. it feels a bit like that's what's happening here with this show, you know, especially for the time, um, which I thought was super fucking interesting. I was getting some Vera flavor from this, sure. which, by the way, I feel like Brecht is the guy that Oscar Wilde met in college, and they had a really hot love affair, and that was it. And then <laughs> they probably um, fucked. No, yeah. that, I, it's what. Yeah, it's what we said when we read it. I was like, "There's a Brechtian feel." Like he was, yes. you know, he was projecting it's, it twenty well, years. Earlier. It's more that. Yeah, it's almost like it's like Vera feels more Brechtian because the rest of uh, the rest of Oscar Wilde's work doesn't feel that way. However, Vera is pre-Brecht. Very much. Yeah. Right. So it's like, it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, and then just also having a female lead and, and stuff like that. I yeah. And I, you mentioned the humor thing, Scott. I actually, like, I, I enjoyed reading this play so much more than Ball. Um, and Ball's tough. I, Ball's tough. I was, when I was reading it, I could see, like, I, I, I'm always thinking with plays like this, like, how do we produce it now? And not just, like, slap it up on stage as some historical thing to watch. And for this, I thought, like, there's humor in here. Like, the stuff that's quote-unquote Brechtian, where it's like they turn, to the, they turn to somebody on stage and say something and then turn out and tell everyone in the audience what they just said to that person or how they reacted. To me, you can play that as funny. If you get the yeah. right performers and the right director in there, yeah. this could clip along and it could be funny in some parts. It could be. It could be. Well, because you could use... <laughs> no, there's a thing... I think it would take a really adept... It would take a really smart room of artists, not just a, an adept director, but it would take like a really smart room of artists because there is a comedic optimism to everything that things can be changed. Right. And, and it's, it's just kind of, it's, it's, it's Fargo. It's got that, <laughs> right. It's got that kind of sensibility or even three guys, one group on a little bit, my play it's where you're, there's that, um, it's sort of funny how they're they're like yeah everything like outside of reason they're like everything's fine it, it will everything will be will be fine it's all great right and the scene my favorite scene was the one where it was right after her son died and then the landlady and one of her neighbors and the neighbors like 
cousin comes to visit her and they like are trying to lend her their Bible and give her free food and everything. And then she tells them all off. Like I thought of you the most Scott during that scene. <laughs> Cause the whole time I was reading that scene, I was like, get him, mom, get him. Um, yeah. The problem is, is that I, I just wasn't ever emotionally invested enough in anything. It was like oh. mother child dies. We're, we're supposed to feel sad, but we're not supposed to feel sad. And so it, it all, but that's my problem with Brecht. It all feels heady to me. It mm -hmm. feels intellectual to me. And there's also like, there's the flip side of this. This is this is coming out in, at a time it 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 has got anti-Nazi themes in it, but it's got pro-Bolshevik themes in it. And you know the the irony there is is that they became just as bad as as the Czarist regime. Sure. They were, you know, they were just as, as heavy handed in terms of controlling their people and controlling their money and uh, controlling their voices as, as anybody else. So I just could never I couldn't get into it beyond thinking about it, which right. is maybe the point. But I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, and I, I got attached to it, too, because I guess where I got emotionally attached to it was the whole idea of woman of a certain age finally finding her purpose in life. And I was like, boy, that's interesting, a play like that coming out in the 30s. I mean, I just thought I loved that aspect of the play as well. Right on, right on. Yeah, I will certainly back up that. Again, I just for me personally, I just didn't get as connected to it. But totally, sure. totally see that. Yeah. 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 I the the quote by Brecht is about this play, and he says this about some of his other works too. And this is I'm about to say something controversial. Uh -oh. I I am a pretentious person. I can be pretentious all day. I'm I, easy, but that's what sometimes I, bathe, I bathe in pretension. I bathe in the river of pretentious, but. <laughs> yeah. But pretension for pretension's sake sometimes gets me. And maybe he's just so much smarter than me that I'm just, I'm just not on that level and I never will be and that's fine because then that means that this is not for me. But when he describes a play as a piece of anti-metaphysical, materialistic, non-Aristotelian drama, which I know means a lot of things to a lot of people and whatever, I, I automatically go, I don't care about any of that. That doesn't mean anything to me. Like, it sounds like you jerking off at first when that's what's described to me. And that was the first thing I read about it before I picked up the play. And I was like, ugh. So I already was a little bit like, oh, my God, am I going to fucking hate this? Now, I did not fucking hate this play. I thought there were some interesting things here. But the one thing that I think it has been critiqued on uh, that I don't know that I, f I would not have felt this if I had not read a review about it already about it. Um, but that the play sort of suggests that to become a good mother, you must not complain about the price of soup, but rather struggle against it um, for your family. And that's kind of what a lot of people have taken from it in this kind of like, well, sometimes they don't even have the means to struggle against it. Sometimes struggling against it is dying and having a child, like giving away a child. Sometimes struggling against it. And so I think there's, there's that side of it that I think a lot of people maybe wouldn't 
um, enjoy. I would not have thought of it that way if I hadn't read the review. No, I thought of it. I came away from it like, man, I wish my parents gave a shit about things that I gave a shit about. (laughs) (laughs) That's like what I came away with after reading. Maybe, I mean, but this sounds like this is a big difference here. I picked up this play and just started reading it. It sounds like you did some like background work before you went in and read it. I did, and I don't normally, but this time... I'm going to say it, Travis, to be honest, I was like, did he just pick the worst one just to like throw us? (laughs) That was my first thought was like, because I had never heard of it. So I was just like, oh, no, he wants us to tackle like a a shit bomb. And I was like, ah, okay. And so I was kind of looking it up and I was reading all this stuff and nothing was scaring me away from it except that that the way that he described it, Breck described it. And I was just like, okay, you know, this will be fine. But that wasn't my experience reading it. I actually liked it more than I thought. I do think... This is the perfect example of a play that would, and I already said this, but that would have to have, it would be have to be ripped to shreds. The director would have to really know exactly what they are trying to say, and everyone in the room would have to be communicated that vision in a way that it was understandable. Because it is, a, this is a toughie. It's, it's a tough, tough piece. And, and the other thing, too, that struck me, because you uh, you mentioned that, that uh, a quote about Aristotelian ism i guess aristotelian non-aristotelian what non-aristotelian non-aristotelian and that's what i admire about brecht is that you know other than some scattered things throughout the history of literature and dramatic literature that there was no other thing there was only aristotelian sort of thinking about uh, about theater and drama sure. and so he's you know well, and he's so he's he's challenging that agreed. but again, it's, it's, it's the a, dogma it's, 95 thing it's what yeah, we're talking about. it's a challenging yeah. of it but i like because the poetic i agree with i agree with this deeply about that that should be a thing i think the poetics and the way we tell st- the hero's journey in general is a patriarchal story structure that we don't need anymore, right? And he's the f- kind of the godfather of this, of changing that. And I think that's why this kind of play is very important, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I guess I'm I'm both defending it and not defending it at the same time, and it feels like I'm on a weird no, I'm like I, walking I know this exactly fence, where it's like. But I do like this play. I think, unfortunately, yeah. Scott, no, no, I, I, I know I get exactly where you're coming from. Um, I would not want to see this play. <laughs> I think I think I would be interested in it for about 20 minutes and then I would have gotten it and and then I would have wanted to have moved on. Well, and like, I kind of wonder if this is with a lot of political theater. Sometimes I wonder, like when we see a January 6th play and everyone's like clapping, like, yeah, I agree. It's like, well, then did we get anything from this? Right. And I think what you're saying is sort of like, yeah, I I already feel this way. I don't know that I need this play. And I kind of have I have a question for Trav, too, just because, you know, way more than I do. Like I saw a thing this weekend. I'll say I saw a thing this weekend that was very much um, our good liberal story presented. And and by the end of it, uh, I was like, who is this for? It oh, wouldn't in therapy, change. I called it hashtag theater. Yeah, maybe. Where it's <laughs> yeah, like this isn't yeah. going to change any Trumpian's mind. This isn't going to wake anybody up. Um, and there's, 
I thought about this, and 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 I I I I don't mean to piss on on Brecht, but there is you can piss a, on me. Okay, you can After, piss on me. We'll talk. Okay. Um, he's a little bit Barton Fink, isn't he? Oh sure. Yeah. You know, he even kind of looks know, like him. <laughs> a little bit, like it's it's the, the working man, the working class, and da da da. But he's coming from such an intellectual place for me that if feels like it's not sincere um and so i guess my question for you trav is is who who was seeing his shows who was seeing these was it intelligentsia was it theater goers was it common folk what like like who was seeing his stuff at this at this time in particular uh yeah he was at this time he was doing commie pop so it was a lot of uh communist folks okay um but also it would have been people that they brought with them as well to kind of be like, let's see the show. Oh, you're this communist propaganda show. So he was doing communist propaganda with the mother. Okay. Um, but so that's kind of why it's structured the way it is, is to where it's like, this is what communism is about. This is what the police do to us for trying to spread our message of we should all have uh, our own means of production, stuff like that. Uh, so it's also we got to remember, this is uh, before fucking Nazis took power. Like there was no Internet. There were people who probably couldn't read. There were people who probably didn't give less shits than we give, honestly. And to so it's less like going to see hashtag theater out in LA where our only audience is uh theater folks that all think the same and are all in their same theater uh preaching to the liberal yeah. bubble. Um and, and instead it was like they weren't on social media uh eight hours a day like most la theater people are you know and they've already see the memes they already see the articles you know they already think trump's gonna go to jail on every fucking news break <laughs> uh, uh so like he uh he, he was it was more of a rallying point it was more it was to me more of just like getting the information across in an entertaining way and criticize the entertainment as you want it's german humor you know sure. and, and, and their humor back then is way different than ours now you For know to crouton crouton laughing but but yeah so like that was the thing was he was he was in, he was essentially the propaganda wing for communism and he was in charge of the entertainment side of that as that's why it was a lot of education and stuff like that because that's kind of what propaganda is is just educating uh political belief um so like yeah uh that that's kind of what the audience was and that's kind of what the intention is and if you also read a lot of the stuff at this time it, it was a lot of commie pop commie pop commie pop Babe, the babe, the can't stop. <laughs> I know you like this. CJ's na- pop. That's da- CJ's da- uh, new solo album. Cosmos pop. B. Uh. Why you want to try? Oh, uh, another thing my parents won't listen to. Tommy <laughs> Pop. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Work it out, girl. Work it out. Vent it. Vent it. <laughs> uh, we should drive. Let's go to Illinois and just uh, knock okay. on your parents' door. <laughs> Blasting all, commie pop like and saying anything us, on a boombox. Uh, yeah, yeah. And we'll all be in drag. 
Perfect. Just playing Rammstein. I guess their new album is supposed to be kind of brilliant. So I don't well, know. Well, and they're like hyper, they're hyper, hyper left winger political with their shit, right? They are, but I wouldn't say that for most. Um, most, most of their Ger- fans? Germa- no, most, Ger- most Germanic heavy metal, oh. black metal, death My, metal. But th- that's, a, that's a whole that's a whole podcast series unto itself. My What's our new podcast? Just be Rage Against the Machine. But... <laughs> Rage Against the Machine is that commie pop? Would you call that commie pop? So, I call it pop. social. I, just, so, I call social it good pop. running music. <laughs> know, System it's... of a Down is mine. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, Jesus I like Christ. Norwegian death metal. Hey. That's ghost. You ever listen to some ghost? Damn, ghost that's rule. just good. Um, Jim is Infernal Majesty. All right, y'all. I think we've I think we've done everything that we can do for this for episode. Sure. I, is there anything else you guys want to say about the mother? Um, I I think this is it's it's so interesting because we're doing three. We always do three of their works, um, and we this one we did a really good job. We're doing the first play he ever wrote. This is like very middle, very and then, middle, yeah. and then Caucasian Chalk Circle is sort of the end before he does a bunch of adaptations, basically. Um, it's kind of one of his final, like original works. Um, so this is, this has been interesting to, to, to discuss because it is such a staple of a genre. He created these learning plays, these teaching plays, these, let me hammer it into you. Uh, so you understand my opinions plays, um, those kind of things. Um, any final word on the mother? I kept thinking of you while reading this, Bailey, because I kept thinking Aww. that the sequel to this play would be that scene in Chernobyl where they come in and that old, old woman is milking the cow and then telling it. her to get out. Oh, my God. And she's like, listen, <laughs> you have no idea what I've fucking lived through. That's right. going to work exactly. to milk my cow. Go fuck uh, yourself. Yeah, there's just, uh, there's also, it just goes with saying, too, uh, there was a lot of censorship with just solely the production of this play, too. Uh, there was stuff that, like, he had to take out about, like, farm workers rebelling. He had to take out, like, the mo- the mother would rip a Bible on stage during that Bible scene. Yes. And they're like, you can't, you can't rip like, a yes! Bible on stage. <laughs> I did enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. I knew you um, would. It's pure, my pure. I... I, I don't let Scott sway y'all. Read the mother. <laughs> listen, it is listen. His top I would, three best, if not his best play. Listen, I won't tell anybody not to read it. Everybody should read it. Um, it, it just it just wasn't my cup of tea, and yeah. I think it was uh, also okay, Spike Lee. <laughs> I did like it more than Ball. I will say. Oh, yes. oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, what were you gonna say, Scott? You had a final thought. Uh, now I can't remember. I'll, wow. I'll figure it out next week. <laughs> okay, y'all. Uh, I so wish. Th- the only other thing that we need to do is spotlight the L.A. theater scene. L.A. spotlight. So let's do it. Let's spit lit. Uh, you all got any spotlight? CJ, you got anything? I don't. Nothing. So, Scott, you got anything? October 21st and 22nd, come see CJ and Bailey and me uh, <gasps> uh, in A Midsummer Nightmare, a uh, reading musical presentation of a new musical by Michael Shaw Fisher at Sacred Fools. It's free. You'll have to get tickets online, but we'll, we'll get to that soon. Trav? Uh, yeah, uh, this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, Friday and Saturday at 8 p.m., Sunday at 7 p.m., 
I am assistant directing a new play entitled Mass Graves by Chris Eli. It is about a man in a halfway house and their hope for a better future. Word. Come check it out. It's Word. really good. It's directed by Matt Lorenzo. Word. Hell yeah. Uh, come see Sanctuary City at the Pasadena Playhouse. Still uh, running there for a few more weeks. Um, it's a phenomenal play that is not getting enough uh, they're uh, tickets sold, unfortunately. Uh, so Word. hit me up if you want tickets. I can probably get them for you. But we're, we're really just trying to fill this house because we feel like people really need to see this play. The LA Times review is one of the best reviews I've ever had on a show that I've oh, been wow. adjacent to. Yeah. Sweet. So really, really solid. Like it, it was like wait, this wait, is wait, wait, wait. Theater. The LA Times review to play. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm getting my dig in. Had to. Thank you. Yeah, wow. it, McNulty, Charles McNulty himself. No, he. It was uh, Charles it, McNulty. It was wow. a f- actually phenomenal um, review because we normally are like, uh, okay, what's he gonna fucking say? But it was like, oh, okay. It's basically it's like this is important theater. You should you should see this play. And we're like, All yeah, right. thank you, good. Um, most of the time he's an asshole. So. Uh, that's all, right? That's all we have to do today? We don't have to do yeah, any other no, stingers? There's no, no other happy no, things? No, uh, not until next week, yeah. Travis, I appreciate you c- coming on no again. No problem. Yeah, brother, uh, always a pleasure. Follow me on Instagram, Gatsby of Suburbia, where yep. I post daily poetry. Yeah. Yeet. And uh, all of his info is also in the uh, show notes. You can check that out. And uh, we we might have we, – we announced last week that there is a song by Pam. There isn't. She was unable to, to uh, make one happen this oh. miniseries. So. This is the most Brechtian song. <laughs> yeah, it's just silence yeah, actually for two minutes. Right. Um, yeah, we're just going to add that into the at the end of this episode. No, uh, but she, she's got a lot going on, y'all. She's, she's, yeah, she's, she's busy. Busy. she's busy. She's rocking. Yeah. Um, but she's going to be on a bunch of our episodes next season and, and whatnot, so you can look forward to more Pam. Uh, but this time we're just we're just gonna close you out like we normally do. So uh, thanks for joining us for theater theater, <laughs> part two of three podcast opera, the works of Bertie Brecht. Um, let's close it out. Uh, John, oh wait, question. no, no. Next week we're covering Caucasian Chunk Circle. Yes. After that is the Wiz. Yes. yes. After that is Tom Stoppard. Yes. Uh, the name of that is Rosenpot and Gildencast are dead. Yes. <laughs> and um, uh, after that, I've been waiting on that one because that was supposed to be on season one and we keep bumping it and we're finally doing <laughs> Stopper. Um, and then we're doing Shakespeare and then we're doing a, a break. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. That's all y'all I have to say. <laughs> y'all have questions or comments? We'd love to hear from you. Keep those questions coming. Um, best of luck. What was the name of the person that messaged us? Austin Almond. Austin, I hope it goes well. We wish you well. Um, you can Got reach this. out to us via email, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Scott. Thank you so much, CJ. A big shout out to Ryan Thomas Johnson for writing our theme song. Our, our theme song is better than your theme song. It's yeah. true. He also writes all of our stingers. I just saw him Saturday night. It was a pleasure to see uh, some RTJ. Uh, yeah. Um, and then uh, finally to the great Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, Annie Baker, who writes every single one of our episodes. CJ, and- I've been meaning to tell you and Travis actually what? that I'm going to have um, a party, but Scott uh, can't come. Oh. Hell yeah. But, but are you right still here. on the call? Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> oh, he was doing the outro. Scott. Okay, go ahead, Scott. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, one day, Annie Baker will buy you a beer, or yeah. I guess Scott. CJ and Aww. Bailey. Will. Yeah, without Scott. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding, Scott. We love you. Uh, we're yeah. Okay. Subscribe, rate, review, all the things. We really appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye, Trav. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Wipe off that stupid lipstick. Return the earrings to their case. Makeup won't make any difference. It's still the same old face. Isn't it funny? Isn't it funny? Isn't it funny you believed that it was real? Pretty funny. Later, everybody. The theater, the theater. Theater, theater. To me.